So I guess we start with a thing that since many people <laughs> will probably hear this for the first time, that this is a podcast reunion, which is a thing that we're doing, like the bands do. And the five-year anniversary tour. Yeah. So I went in research today as we were uh, a podcast from April 28th, 2014 to August 6th, 2015, which I can't believe it was that short of time. And we had one reunion episode January 7th, 2016. But I had sent you earlier this year that I was kind of shocked that we still get thousands of listeners a year for a current event web podcast that seemed a little weird and then yeah i saw you were on another podcast and we decided to do this so i guess welcome back to podcasting thank you it has been a huge month for me <laughs> i'm big in audio now <laughs> we started the podcast trend and now here we are to capitalize on it it is true i mean if you think about it now that I'm a professional podcaster, that this really was the start of my career. There it is. Look, it's all up to me. My standard <laughs> commission rate is 15%, as you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, I sure do. Yeah, I hadn't done anything like this since the last time we did. And then my friend, who you know as well, Heather, invited me on her If You're Listening podcast, which I told her I did not want to do. And I did it. And now <laughs> I am breaking. I have a rule that I've now broken twice in a month. So we'll see if I become a rule again that I do not do stuff like this anymore. But What's the rule because of? After everything happened with the band Brand New in 2017, I wanted to be less of a public internet person, not out of hiding anything, but more of just that was a really intense period of my life before everything went to shit as well. Like I was obviously after Property Zach, I, I had a very public profile to pop punk boys then. <laughs> but <laughs> yes. while working with Brand New, like there were, when I would be at their shows, there'd be people staring at me and being like, oh, I think that's the one that works with their label or stuff like that. And it was kind of enjoyable in a sense that like, wow, like you get to be like a cool person. But once that all went away, I decided it was very much something that I didn't miss and that I think was best for my life, my relationship, my artist, that I didn't really want to be like a public person so much. I think there's disadvantages to it. You know, if you want to go on like the most extreme end of a manager of being like a public figure, you look at like a Scooter Braun or someone, right? And like, he has an ability to like, truly like launch artists, you know, he yes. can post stuff. I mean, he, I think gets paid to post stuff for people, right? Like that is a really extreme end, obviously. But like having a large audience that pays attention to you and the work you do is, is obviously beneficial to the artists you might manage or to your company, whatever. I think I definitely miss out on that. Obviously not to Scooter Braun's level, but like, <laughs> yes. you know, when my old Instagram page or Twitter page had, you know, anywhere from, I don't know, probably two to 5,000 followers. I'm sure if I never stopped tweeting, it would be more than that. I felt like the work I was hopefully going to be doing was not only going to succeed if I had a couple thousand Twitter followers, you know? <laughs> so I have tried to just be very private other than my website, which I try to update actually very frequently. And I tell people sometimes like anything that I want to be public about me is readily available on my website. You know, like I, <laughs> and that I think is, is nice because it's like a controlled way where someone like can't be like, Oh, he tweeted something dumb. I don't like him or something. Yes. You know, just if you want to see a very clean picture of me, you can go to my website. <laughs> I always assumed it was more that the bads wanted you to not be so public because that is what it is for me. Like, you know, like now that especially I have this YouTube channel, the bads I manage are like, don't talk about us on there. And I'm like, well, that's fun. I mean, that's why we stopped doing this podcast, actually, is because I got a job of working for Brand New, I think a month before the last episode. And I decided that I could not be a public person in that regard 
start because a lot of the, the blog and podcast was talking about brand new. <laughs> I figured we couldn't keep doing this. And I obviously decided to close the website down too. But yeah, I don't know. I think there's some, yeah, sometimes it's cringy, right? I don't, sometimes I don't think you want like your like manager to be like screaming, like, I don't know, being like the soccer mom or dad, you know? <laughs> yeah. And there's also just a thing of that bands should be viewed as doing things themselves like the things i always yes, felt I couldn't agree like, more. Yeah. bad about yeah it'd be like you know especially after i put out get more fans i'd see people saying things like oh well man overboard would never have done it and i'm like that's could not be further from the truth that was one of the hardest working bands with great songs and that's why it worked i just was a maybe small boost to what they did in a nice guiding force but they would have been a substantial band no matter what yeah exactly and I think the same for me with artists I worked with. I think in the early days of like Knuckle Puck, it was different because I had this large, very large platform of Property Zach, right? Where they were yes. posted about. And so that was a direct sphere of influence, which I'm glad I had. <laughs> but yeah, I don't want anyone like for Cave Town. I don't want a single person to know I'm involved. You know, that's just not what I want. Except, for that, that you get, except for that you get interviewed by publications about it all the time. <laughs> that, uh, I mean, the nice thing is that children don't read. <laughs> This is good. And I, I do want to talk a little bit more about what you get interviewed for about him later. But some of the stories you've told about that are very funny. Yeah. And that is the stuff, I guess, where I'm willing to be more public, where I feel like it's speaking to other industry people, you know, mm -hmm. especially people that like I'm not friends with or we don't follow each other on Instagram or something. That is where I want. Like, I'm happy if that's it. That stuff, I think, is like an exception to the rule. This, us doing this right now is just breaking the rule. But that's okay. Caveat for you. There is something that I don't think a lot of people people know, which is that both of us have lots of businesses, but I think a lot of people that used to listen to this don't know that you have some very interesting businesses. I'm always kind of blown away because what people probably also don't know is that we still work together a good amount. And a lot. Every month. If not at least every other week, which I'm very grateful for. You want to tell people what you actually do now? Sure. I do three things, I think. Not counting a donut shop. If you're in Philadelphia, please visit Hello Donuts. I, I will say this. All my friends in Philadelphia, all I see is your fucking donut shop, but they don't even know you. Carbs, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Sugar is a drug. I do three things. I have a management company uh, called Alternate Side. When we did this podcast, I used to work for a management company called Synergy with my then boss, Avange. Her and I are now partners in a new management company that launched last year in 2019 called Alternate Side, where I manage artists like um, Cave Town, Knucklepuck, Chloe Moriando, and Kevin Devine. My partner, Avange, manages bands like Citizen, Real Friends, and then a lot of SoundCloud rappers, Nothing mm -hmm. Nowhere, and Lund, and Oliver Francis. So that's one thing. Uh, and we have a great staff under us. We have another manager named Corey. Uh, I have an excellent, awesome day-to-day -day manager under me named Whitney. And then we have two others named Mike and Sophie. So we have a great little company that's been doing quite well. And we're thrilled with that. Avanj and I have a, called a JV, a joint venture with Electra Music Group called Public Consumption, where we are working with the folks that do Field by Ramen and Electra Records to create our own label that we're signing artists to. The first artist that we have on that label right now is Chloe Moriando, who I also manage. Fantastic artist. Just released an awesome song for her called Manta Rays, and we have a bunch of great new songs coming this year. And I, I think, I think honestly, that Chloe is going to be the largest artist at our company within the next eighteen months. I could definitely see it. We have some real insane songs, and she is only 17 and like an unbelievable oh talent God. and is working harder than anyone else I know through quarantine. 
she is killing it. We are making a ton of music for her right now when we, she would have just finished high school. <laughs> so that has been wonderful. And, and so she's on public consumption. We have another artist signed to there that we're not talking about yet and more. And then the third thing I do is like a passion project and something I'm really passionate about <laughs> called Many Hats Endeavors. Many Hats was born in 2015. Actually, right after we stopped doing this podcast is when I, that company kind of started in earnest. I do a bunch of things through many hats. I make vinyl for people that do not have a record label or a manager and do everything themselves, like true DIY artists, except they don't know how to make vinyl or they don't want to or they're nervous about it, but they do have the funds for it. So I, I work with Jesse a lot where many times a month I will send him masters to turn into vinyl-ready masters that we can press and release vinyl for. So Many Hats has like these three components to it. Component one is like a white label service where, like I just said, I'll make art, I'll make vinyl for a bunch of artists. And then that's a small business revenue. Uh, there's no label name to it. It's truly white services. So like there's no Many Hats logo on it. The second part of that business is called Miscellaneous Recordings, which is like my sub record label for Many Hats, where I will um, invest some money in an artist, have my logo on it. And that's more of like a services company. If you're familiar, the listener with companies like The Orchard or AWOL, and maybe that kind of stuff is something we'll talk about later on in this episode, but services type things are sure. fascinating to me. And that's why this company exists. And then the third thing under many hats is brand new. And actually, Jesse, you don't even know about it yet called many hats distribution. Mm. As of a couple months ago, many hats is now a digital distributor. We have a direct deal with Merlin, which took nine months of effort. I just did one with MVD and it's like, I just crossed six months. Yeah. It was actually the best thing for me about the virus. It was, it enabled me to actually get there and finish the process. But now my artists that I manage are making more money than they were from TuneCore. I don't know if you know this, mm. and I bet our listeners probably don't know this, but Universal and Warner and Sony have about a 14% better distribution rate with Spotify than the TuneCores and CD Babies of the world do. 14% is obviously an incredible amount of difference. <laughs> and so Merlin uh, bridges that gap, and they have a much closer to that rate, so a much higher rate than TuneCore does. So I put in many months of effort, and now all of our artists are receiving better royalty rates for their music. And that is a business service I am now offering to other artists outside of the management company as well through many hats distribution. Mm. And so we're distributing a lot of catalog through that. And that's a really exciting thing that is a lot of hard work and is behind the scenes, but it's something that I believe will lead a lot of artists to um, be better off for themselves and, and in control of their masters. So that is a lot of stuff outside of also having bad timing records, which I forgot about and still very well <laughs> exists. But um, yeah. Yeah, you guys have been making a good amount of stuff. Yeah, it's been a very busy year for bad timing too, which is awesome. It's it, Last year was kind of slow. We have these, I feel like we have one very busy year and then one slow year, but it, it's always nice. I feel like Thomas and I have been in a better flow together than we have been in a while, uh, which is cool. Too much stuff. <laughs> what about you? I still manage some bands who, like I said, don't like me to talk about them, but most of my bands are legacy bands, so I don't have to deal with the day-to-day -day bullshit, thank God. I should say all but one of the four is inactive and uh i master a lot of records i mix a lot of records i don't really produce as much especially since corona since i don't want to be in the room with five people but a lot of that is because i have like three full lengths this year and i'm really trying to if i am going to produce a record i want to put my all into it but i don't have i also have a lot of all to put into things anymore because i'm doing 
some stuff I really care about, which is so for like two and a half years since we did this podcast, I was at Warner Music Group, which is Atlantic Electra, which you mentioned your labels through. And I was making podcasts for them that right about the time of the coronavirus that stopped. And now I've been making tons of different podcasts, mostly for the news organization, the Daily Beast Newsweek. The big one I do is called The New Abnormal, which is has peaked as high as number three in the podcast charts and is almost always in the top 50 each day we put out an episode and it is a whole lot of work where I basically like what I like to joke is we make a two minutes hate against Trump and do a lot of news and really important interviews on how we get that piece of shit out of the office. My studio moved from Union City to Fort Greene, Brooklyn, which was nice since I've lived in Brooklyn the entire time I had that studio in New Jersey. Beautiful neighborhood. Yes, it's so nice here. As we discussed when I moved, we are a block and a half from what are you and I's favorite restaurant. And I have a podcast and live streaming studio in the heart of Times Square that I don't do anything with because it's the coronavirus. But that was about to open up right as this hit. And maybe one day we'll open up. We will see. And most of all, what takes up a lot of my time is I have a new YouTube channel where I teach bands how to go from zero to 10,000 fans. But speaking of YouTube, I think one of the cool things you and I should talk about, because I talk about your bands on my YouTube channel because they do such cool things is you have two artists that particularly do amazing things on YouTube. I wanted to ask you to talk about what you see as the YouTube landscape these days and how your artists connect on there because one, Cave Town and Chloe do YouTube better than most any artist. And two, I never think musicians put enough of an emphasis on YouTube and they do it well and are really rewarded for it because their numbers are insane out there. Yeah, I never took YouTube seriously as a platform for my artists that I managed before I started working with Robin, uh, who's Cave Town. First of all, I will say I am not a big YouTube person myself. I subscribe to a bunch of channels. I watch a few creators regularly and pretty much nothing else. So like I was a huge fan of like when Casey Neistat was in the heyday of his vlog days. That really inspired me, and I loved that. I subscribed to a bunch of tech YouTubers like MKBHD, and then I watched one series from The Ringer, which is a sports publication called NBA Desktop, which is one of my favorite things in the internet on the internet. But otherwise, I really don't like engage with YouTube that much, other than watching. I mean, honestly, I probably the most YouTube I watch is probably of like my artists when they're putting out new stuff. So. I'm kind of like a bad person for that. And that's why I think it was a blind spot for me where like Grace, my wife, like she watches, I don't know, she might watch an hour of YouTube stuff a day, you know, or more. I'm about that, if not more. Yeah. And and as I started to work with Robin about two and a half years ago now, like it became more and more clear that like YouTube was just, is just TV for younger people. Right. And that's a very known thing. It's not like me saying that as a surprise that that is considered to be like an industry standard thing that people know now, but it was not something I really thought much about because my artists, like a lot of like the more like punk or alternative artists I worked with and some still do work with, they were not creating content, right? Like they were, they're my age. They're anywhere from 20 now seven to whatever, 30 something. And they, they did not grow up with like a phone in their hand, like an iPhone in their hand, like Robin or Chloe did. And I think because of that, like how they create stuff is very different. So when I found Robin, um, his music was only on YouTube and Spotify. Nothing was on DSPs. <laughs> <laughs> so funny when you see that. It was insane. I mean, really now when we think about how much he's grown in two and a half years, it's pretty staggering that he did not exist on streaming services two and a half years ago. 
And so Robin always considered himself an artist first, but, you know, to many people was a YouTuber, but he definitely did not want to be considered a YouTuber. And I did not want to manage a YouTuber, and I still don't. So that was very <laughs> important to me. But I said, we really got to get all your stuff on DSPs. <laughs> uh, what was great about Robin was that, like, he really liked talking to his audience, and it was just him in his bedroom, and he didn't know he could step outside of his bedroom. And what we've done over the last two and a half years is step him outside to tens of thousands of people outside of the bedroom. Unfortunately, as Robin has done that and has toured and has grown and has life like robin actually makes a lot less youtube content now and kind of like a vloggy sense but we still treat his channel incredibly seriously it is a loss leader for us we spend a lot of money when he's on tour having really incredible videographers and, and sound people etc out to film and edit and it's incredibly expensive for us but the stuff looks great though that you guys put out yeah we view it as a marketing tool that we think a lot of what i spend my time thinking about in like a big picture pie in the sky view as a man right now is like how can we invest in places where others can't robin is fortunate in that he owns the majority of his catalog which means he sees the majority of his income from spotify and apple and etc and a lot of his peers don't most people in the world don't but that gives us a real head a leg up in that if we decide to invest that money back into talk about this like a business if we decide to invest that money back into business we can grow our business stronger than others can and that's what we want so we use his YouTube channel as a loss leader for us and as a marketing tool. And we want really high quality stuff mixed with personal personality things with Robin, whether that is him rating oat milk or him rating dogs <laughs> or him doing a Q&A. And then we mix that with really incredible music videos and live performances, which I think now are kind of more valuable than ever when people are missing those things. Yes. So that's Robin. It's been a winding road. There was definitely a period where we really wanted Robin to be uploading one video a week. And then we gave up on that because it just blew up and we didn't think it was going to blow up. You know, we had him touring to his detriment pretty much for two years straight in music. And oh, wow. I didn't realize that. It was hard. I mean, he was really just the, the mistake. It's hard. It's not so much a mistake and no one really regrets it, but like we didn't think he was going to blow up how he did. So when we booked one tour, we every tour we booked for a year should have been twice as big by the time that tour actually happened. So we had to keep kind of doing the next tour bigger because we didn't want to let it language, you know? Now we're like kind of restructuring <laughs> moving forward. But so yeah, like YouTube for him is still really important. We care deeply about that relationship with his audience, but we don't want you to, at some point, YouTube kind of became a chore for him. So he didn't want to do it if it wasn't like out of passion. So now we try to mix it up with what we put there. Chloe is a little different. Chloe is like a monster on YouTube. Every time I go to show her to somebody, you know, it's funny. I showed her to, I was talking about both her and Chloe to Alan Douches's daughter, who is, she's really becoming amazing at what she does. But it was like funny. It's like when I looked at the numbers on Saturday, I was like, oh my God, like this is so much bigger than the last time I looked. Yeah. So Chloe just crossed 3 million subscribers. <laughs> when I started working with her in, August of 2018, I think she had just under a million, which is crazy. She was 15 at the oh time, which is stupid. Now she has 3 million. And Chloe, unlike Robin, has actually never done the like talking to the camera about my life thing. She's only had one video like that ever. Chloe got really popular on YouTube by doing covers and her own songs. But she talks a little bit before the song. Yes, she, she does talk. Yes, and that's really crucial. It's very compelling because she 
you see you learn about her yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're it's about also you know we could all use the word authentic for a lot of things mm-hmm. it's so like more beyond what most artists are doing of connecting with somebody yeah it's very welcoming and, and revealing and, and chloe is she's 17 and so i i think she wants that's what she wants out of her the artist that she cares about too you know mm. and so yeah chloe had, does that and she's really good at it unlike cave town she's never done those videos of like talking to the camera I'm going to rate whatever dogs or cats or stuff. But the algorithm has always loved her. And I mean, her videos, especially when she was doing covers, when I started working with her, would just explode. Like sometimes, you know, they get 100,000 plays in a night. And still now, because I mean, we have Chloe. Chloe was in school all year. She just finished her senior year of school. And we had her working really hard on music. So the channel has been a little less active. But when we are active, it again, takes off. We just released a new song. So for Chloe, it's like whenever we release a new song, like a studio produced song, we also have her do like a stripped down acoustic version or ukulele version in her bedroom. And those do incredibly well. So we're always trying to hit you a couple different times with the song. Mm. And that works really well for us because her audience, I mean, they love her produced music, but the YouTube audience really wants to see her in her bedroom just like they did two years ago. So that's really important to us. And it's an incredible marketing tool because a week after we release the studio song, we get to hit you again with it. And the link is in the bio and she talks about it and all that stuff, you know? So it really helps us. And because she has such a wide audience and can talk before the videos she can also be like i'm going on tour next month or i have a new shirt up or like i'm doing this thing for charity whatever it is and it's incredibly beneficial for us i think you just hit on a thing though that is part of the youtube thing that is so simple that people don't get which is just the like make a different version of the content yeah and just make it compelling like you know when we like the music videos we've released for chloe so far we, we did a first music video of this past January and it blew up because she had never done a video before a music video before and it's really like well high quality and it's like kind of like a gory like spooky video and so people were really into it and but then we did an acoustic version of it and that crushed too (laughs) people want that you know and if you're gonna I mean some of her audience I'm sure listens to her new song several times a day they're definitely gonna watch a different version of a YouTube video you know especially when you have a younger audience and and that's more of the artists that we're working with right now I just you you don't know this yet either I guess it's very new I've been working with a new artist named Addison Grace uh kind of like Robin definitely wants to be a music artist but was it's really popular on the platform she has two million tiktok followers oh wow but she wants to be an artist and she's a really talented songwriter has an incredible voice and so we were in this quandary of starting to work with her she had nothing on youtube nothing on dsps nothing recorded but she like has these songs that she plays on tiktok and stuff you know so i, I thought back to what we were doing with chloe and robin at the beginning and i said okay let's not rush music onto dsps let's take our time instead let's you had a youtube channel that you haven't published to in two years let's start releasing every Monday one one original song then one cover song then one original song then one cover song and she went from having 10,000 subscribers a month ago to close to 50,000 now in just a month wow her first song that we put up has over 100,000 streams in a month on YouTube she put a Billie Eilish cover up just one week ago and it has by the time this is out 100,000 plays so, uh, we, you know, we're really trying to develop an audience there for her on YouTube so that people are really familiar with Addison Grace, the artist, not the TikTok person. And so by the time we release any songs on DSPs, which is hopefully going to be in the next six to eight weeks, 
it's much more like, oh, hey, like, by the way, I have a new song out now on Spotify. Go check it out because now she'll have, hopefully by then, she'll have 75,000 YouTube subscribers. So we're really also trying to build things in a smart, slow way. We're never trying to rush with the artists we work with. We like to build found. I just strongly believe in building foundation. So, but that is counterintuitive to what a lot of people think. What is, what informed that belief? I'm just here for the long run. I mean, working with Kevin Devine is like a great other swing of that example. Kevin's career is older than Chloe. Is years <laughs> like truly. Uh, I think Kevin's been a professional artist since he was 20 and he's in his early 40s. Yeah, I think we're the same age. Chloe is 17. That doesn't happen by accident. A lot of hard work goes on it. And, and we're always trying to build a little more every time, right? Even with Kevin, when I started managing him in 2016, he's still growing. He's, he isn't done growing yet. And Kevin's been doing this for 20 years. It is always a marathon for me. And I think for our company, and that's why we've had success. It's just like, look, what I love, like any artist I work with to go mega viral. Yeah, <laughs> sure. But most artists that do come back down just as fast. You know, it's the very few. It's the very few that sustain to long careers. That doesn't mean there aren't those that do. Right. But most don't. And I am not interested in managing an artist that I don't believe in. And I'm just excited. You know, I just want to be a part of them to make money from them for six months. Like I want to be working with Chloe when she's 30, not just when she's 19 or 15. And in all the years of doing this, I still work with like a ton of the artists I started with on day one. A couple have broken up. A couple were just mutual decisions to stop working with each other. But like Knuckle Puck, Citizen, Real Friends, Movements, Kevin Devine, like these are all artists we at the company have been managing for almost six years now, uh, which is a long time in this world. Oh, and management. That's eternity, yeah. Yeah. We don't get, I mean, we've never been fired by an artist and we don't plan on that changing, you know? So yeah, we just want to grow. Like I, it, it doesn't do me any good, especially for say this, this young Addison that I'm working with for us to release a song on Spotify too, for it to go well and then to have nothing else for four months, right? Like we need to have a plan. We need to have lots of stuff coming and we need to build a real audience for her over time. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I would have gone this route if I hadn't been working with Robin and Chloe before, but if this strategy is already working and I'm excited about it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing I see working now that people just can't seem to accept is real is that it's consistent, sustained promotion, that it's got to be. Yeah. It always has to be slow growth. It always, look, obviously lots of people do the other thing and they have success. It's mm -hmm. not like my model's the only model, but Cave Town touring for close to two years straight was like really exhausting, obviously. And, and it was exhausting for me too. It was exhausting for everyone. Yeah. But I viewed that as like a punk artist. Like that's what I told him. I said, I want you to know what it's like to play in a 250 cap room in Philly without a green room where it's literally a, um, a chair closet of where the chairs are is the green room. So you get to see this. So you, maybe you never have to see it again. Right. But like, I want you to see this, you know, he did his first two tours in a band. Then we went to 500 cap and 700 cap and 1500 cap. Right. I wanted him to see every step and I wanted his audience to also see every step because I thought there would be a better connection for them with him. If they were able to see him in a 300 cap room and then at Webster hall and then hopefully at terminal five next time i want you to be a part of that story and i'm i'm concerned that if we just started at webster hall some of those people want to come along to terminal five you know i want them to be invested in the artist just like i am yeah i think there is that thing that it is true that fans tell themselves a story about an artist and when you have a story 
area that begins to go shitty, it can be really detrimental to artists and it's really hard to get around. Yeah, it's hard to turn that back, you know, <laughs> especially when you're going really fast. It's hard to like, yeah, it's hard to turn that back around and get to back to where you need to be. Yeah, YouTube has been interesting. I It's tough. I wish I was like, I'm not a great social media person, people. I think sometimes people think like, I'm good at social media. I'm good at working with artists that are good at it, I think. Well, yeah, you're filling in the blank. Yeah, like I don't use TikTok. I don't like, to, Grace spends two hours on TikTok a day. Wow. You know? <laughs> she is hooked on TikTok. China loves Grace. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm I only use TikTok to look at her profile. You know, that's it. And you're not seeing things from the algorithm that make you interested in keeping watching. No, no. But, and, and I'm also not interested in, I mean, so many people, I'm sure you know, like just, I mean, TikTok is the new, like you only, record labels are only, only signing artists that are popular on TikTok. Yeah, yeah. It is <laughs> uh, and that's just not my thing. Like, uh, our, the Chloe and Robin's record labels, respective labels, are not pleased that they don't use TikTok. And I always, I have to tell them once a quarter, they are not using TikTok. You can't make us, you know, because they don't want to. The last thing I want is for them to use that profile because they're being forced and then I'm being bad, you know? I always go back to that thing with the younger artists of like when Lord started blowing up and her label like she tells the story they're like you got to use hashtags on twitter she's like if i do that my career is over you guys do not get it and she was right and there is this thing that like obviously we've both worked at large labels and have been around this but there are a lot of people whose only brain cells tell them must imitate other things successful and don't get that there's lanes and separate things that all work for different artists and not everything needs to be maximized by doing everything all the time and you can have your own distinct personality and brand. And it's not about being an exception. It's actually about that, like, authenticity weighs more than anything else. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the, like, trust me, like, <laughs> the label definitely would rather Robin not be on uh, TikTok than to make videos of why he thinks TikTok is dumb. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll give away the secret sauces that we made some things to just. Dis- I'm curious, you had Patreon on here. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I, very briefly, very for until from January 1st, of 2015 to the day we shut this podcast down originally I had a Patreon properties out. Oh, that's right, uh, you did. And I liked the model back then. I found it interesting back then and I, I paid for a Patreon for a podcast that I'm a fan of. As do I. But we decided to launch a Patreon for Kevin Devine right after coronavirus. We kind of waited a few weeks and launched it on April 1st and it's been a shocking success. We have like just under 500 patrons that pay between probably an average of, I don't know, $12, $13 a month, I would guess. And it's been an incredible project. Like it's kind of been, I mean, I I tell Whitney, the day-to-day manager I work with, like it's been the most valuable thing we will do for any artist we work with this year because Kevin, you know, relies on touring, he has a child, he has a family, you know, it's like he doesn't live with his parents, you know. (laughs) We had to go to, you know, we had to replace the vast majority of someone's income in two-week notice and it's really worked and we treat it very seriously. You know, we have full branding for it. That's right. I customize a, a designer, Matt, I work with has handled and we have this calendar where we do like, you know, every, oh yeah, well, we should say Jesse is involved in this too, actually. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mix and master them. So I know the calendar very well, but I have to, I have to make time for it when they come in. Yeah. The first week of every month, Kevin does a cover that he makes in his, in his home of another artist. The second week of every month, Kevin does a rendition of one of his catalog songs. And they're kind of acoustic-ish with sprinkles that Kevin's been getting a lot better over the years of working with me and, and also working with Jesse of kind of like 
doing light, just call it light production ultimately, right, Jesse? What I would call it is he's becoming a bedroom producer. Kevin is a young bedroom pop artist like everyone else <laughs> I work with now. Because he's prettying them up. They're really good. It's not like they're just acoustic versions that he like recorded and spits them out. They're really thought out. He puts a lot of time into them. And so those are the first two weeks of every month. The third is like a video address and Q&A. And the fourth is like an Instagram private live stream. And then we're like offering merch discounts or vinyl or stuff like that. And I think, I mean, it's fascinating to me. I think we're I don't think we're ever going to get rid of this. I think this is the new model forward for Kevin Fine. You know, I think like in the future, when God willing, there's touring again, you'll only be able to get pre-sale if you're part of the Patreon. Well, you know, we want to keep adding value, but I love it. I mean, it's really interesting if you have an artist that has a lot of meat on the bones, you know, I, I think it's really tough for bands to do it because one, even if you make a lot of money, you're still splitting it up three to five ways, you know, and that's hard. But for like a kind of like solo singer, songwriter type artist, I think it's awesome. Uh, especially if you have like a longer career and treat it very seriously. Like this is Kevin's job now, you know, right now, like this is what makes sense for him to sink the most of his time into outside of making his next record that we're working on. But I, I found it really um, refreshing. It's been really like creative for me. And I, I really like it as a model. And I know some people like complain about the fees Patreon take, but I think they're very modest considering how much value we've yeah. gotten without having that much work. It, you know, like the setup is so easy. It's crazy. But I mean, it is that thing that everybody complains about fees. But I, I mean, I think the biggest challenge with this, and you know, much like what we just discussed with YouTube, is that artists have little imagination of how to do this. And like, you know, I've been seeing a few things like there's the artist, you know, Spirit Box. Yeah. I just looked at their Patreon that they started and they're doing some interesting things. And I think like, it is funny if this has brought out people finally learning how to do this a little bit better. But like traditionally, there's a reason why, like while I think musicians have way more potential to have huge Patreons, there's a reason podcasters are pretty much the top of it. Yeah, no, it's a great model for that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like I think of what I pay for it. I'm sure what you pay for is I pay for that exclusive episode because I don't want yep. to live without it. A bonus episode, yep. I should say I didn't talk about it before, but like I have this podcast coming out that I work on called Killed by Desk, where we interview people who are no longer making their living from a band and they now have a day job about their day job. And we talk to their coworkers and it's very funny, but also informative. But we're doing that model along with a merch model because we have such amazing merch for it. And it works, but like there has been this thing that since musicians, one, you know, their content speaks so much of them. You know, you put out a song, that song lives forever. It's a part of your body of work. It's, you can, a lot of people are very precious about that and then two a lot of for a lot of musicians it doesn't give a lot of value to just shit out a remix or a thing like that for their fans so it's been very hard to find what it is but what you've done with kevin really really seems like it's been like an incredibly cool thing for his audience that they really like yeah and it's invigorating and his audience loves it i mean he's the type of artist that it fits so well for too right like it's very emotionally connected to you you've probably grown up with him right maybe you started listening to kevin 16 and now you're 32 or something right whatever and it's like and you probably have a little more money to spare right because i mean coronavirus uh, not <laughs> included because you're like a real human with a real yeah it's really nice and I, as a as a podcast listener i really appreciate it too i would pay for more of them i pay for a couple like podcast memberships that aren't through patreon but there's always that you've talked about this a lot over time but like you know it goes back to that like a thousand true fans thing obviously it's like there's always some that are the extra fans and i think for a long time before the last few years people were kind of asking for extra money with, without really giving audience much in return I, I think but i think recently as more like 
younger people have become like the podcasters that are popular or the artists that are popular, like they have kind of changed up that model and are giving more of what they would want. And yeah, I think it's a great model if you're, if you're willing to do it well, like the, the one thing with Kevin's to me was just that like, we have to be so consistent. We have to have great branding. We need to be overly friendly. Every There's a discord for the Patreon. And like at the I end of every that. month, I go in there, I go in there at the end of every month and I'm like, how did we do this month? Anything we could do better? Anything thing you'd like to see right like i'm it's very important i mean it is kevin's true income right now you know so it's like we want to do the best job possible and i am very interested in feedback and changing adjusting all of it you know and it's a really awesome community so it hasn't felt like terrible either it's not like going and reading a yelp review you know yeah and i think as with everything else people will figure out this more but you did talk about something that you said maybe we should talk about which i'm definitely curious about which is you said let's talk about the i like to call them aggregate services or distributors. What have you been seeing? Because this is a, a road I've gone down and I should say my girlfriend works at Red Eye. So it's like, it's a world that I'm always in. Actually, that's good to know. Thank you. I did not realize we never discussed that. Yeah. So, I mean, there's been this huge shift, obviously, like the last few years to a lot of new players in the industry. And the Orchard is someone that's been around for a long time as Sony Red. And, and I, literally as long as I've been in the music business, which means at least 25 years. Yeah. I mean, really all company owned by Sony now, but in the last few years, they've changed a lot of what they do and now they're also a services company and for what that means for people that don't know is there is a new type of let's call it record label type beast called a services company and services deal where the artists keep their ownership of their music which is excellent and a, a service company does a lot of the same offerings that a record label does but for hopefully a, a anywhere from 15 to 30 percent instead of 50 to 80 percent or more there's no ownership the term might be anywhere from three to ten years so it's not necessarily long or short it depends what the deal is wow i didn't realize the terms are that long jesus it depends it all depends yeah because most of the contracts i got were two because look you might want no money up front you might want a million dollars right it all depends and hopefully you're getting a lot of the same work that you would out of a major label or a large indie label but you get more of your rights there are dings on services company that like they don't do great work or like they're not as connected as a major labels or like there's an overall i would say a great company called awol that is kind of like the prince of services companies. We had talked about signing Cave Town there instead of the Warner, but a couple of years later, I'm very glad we didn't because they have like five other Cave Towns there. They have MX Untuned, Girl in Red, High Dreams, and like three others. I don't want to be just another one there because you're you're then talking to the same Spotify playlisting person about yeah. six artists that are basically not the same, but you know it's the same in their brain. But a lot of these companies are really great. But I, it's, it's something I'm really interested in, and that's kind of what many hats was born for because I think like myself, you, people like Triple Crown, Avant, a lot of the folks we work with are around. It's like we have succeeded by being like really close to like what I call like being close to the metal, which I guess kind of like a tech term. Like you want to be like the closest to like your hardware. Like that's why Apple's a good company because they make both the software or the and the hardware so mm -hmm. they work better together. We've done really well by being like on the ground. That means like maybe we're not the most successful or richest or whatever people by any means, but we know how to do the little things a lot better than the big guys do, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. A lot better. <laughs> and so that's why I know how to make vinyl. That's why I know how to have a publishing company. That's why I know XYZ because like 5% better for big person X might not be worth it, but 5% better for one of my artists or for you, Jesse, or for me, it's, yeah. it could be everything. You know, it's really worth it. And, and that's what I think services companies are there to do. But I think there's even like more ground that they're not covering.
I work with this artist called Flat Sound, and I've enabled him to probably make three or four thousand pieces of vinyl, and he's probably profited anywhere from twenty-five to thirty-five thousand dollars from that, which is incredible for an independent bedroom artist. Orchard doesn't give a shit about working with him, and I guess it's kind of self-serving for me to say that, like, whatever, like this is why many hats exist. Come work with many hats, but many hats distribution isn't taking thirty percent of your catalog; we're taking five percent. You know, because uh, I don't need 25%. I just need a little bit. But I have a leaker catalog. The funny thing about back catalog is that you can't get it on playlists. You know, no one's pitching to get a seven year old song on a playlist, right? But that seven year old songs might still be making $10,000 a year for you. So would you rather give up 5% of that or 30% of that? You know, so I think there's a lot more wiggle room in the services type of field. And I think it's really exciting. And to me, like, I heavily believe in all the artists I work with owning part of their catalog to the point where there's more leverage for them to give up some of it to go get something else to get more help to get more marketing to get money to live off of whatever it is but yeah it's funny with the label services thing is that like back god probably even before you and i knew each other like i can remember doing the interviews with get more fans with like metrics manager who is really Mm. one of the people like really the first person to do this was joan jett in the 80s and there's like a little bit about that, I think, in her documentary, if I remember right. But, like, really metric, you know, hired out, I think it was 23 people, if I remember right, and, like, really, really did this. But it's funny, because now there's this thing I talk about since, obviously, we've been watching the music business for so long, is that, like, I've been saying that there's kind of been this bad arc where, like, yes, we're now at that point where, like, streaming music is taken all over, where major labels have so much power that you're probably not getting on Spotify radio if you're a artist that's not on one of the bigger distributors that you're just on TuneCore DistroKid, it's going to be pretty much nearly impossible for you to get served into a lot of the algorithms as easy as just a mediocre artist on a bigger distributor. But one of the funny things is, is like, I think we had a real heyday of these label services about seven years ago. And now, you know, you look at what the Orchard's putting out and what they charge for these services, and it's so fucking stupid. For what you get in return, it is unbelievably a bad product. And I'm not the least bit afraid to see it because I've worked on enough campaigns with them that I've just seen that you put money into this and it's fucking dog shit when you get back. Yeah, and there's a lack of customer service also with all the services, you know, and that's frustrating. But you hit on another thing, which was the owning the masters, which is a big part of this, which is also a bigger picture thing for a lot of artists. So talk to me about what your thinking is on that. Yeah, every artist, I think like literally every artist at the company owns, at the management company owns part of the catalog. That ranges from Knuckle Puck owning the EPs before they signed to Rise Records to Cave Town owning everything but his last record that came out in March to Kevin Devine owning like six out of his nine records he's released. <laughs> uh, some of those catalogs make $300 a month for our artists. Some of them make close to six figures a month for some of our artists. And it's an incredible thing to have, you know? You made the music, you put in the hard work, you toured the world on it. Like, I believe in artists owning their catalog. That being said, we decided for Cave Town to sign to a major label because we felt like we built his foundation as high as we could build it without mm-hmm. any additional help. Even when we hired out, we just wanted people that did this every day, you know? And so we decided to sign him to a very aggressively good and short deal. And and we're all in with Warner Records and Sire Records. And we hope for nothing but the best. And we hope to be there for a very long time. That being said, we were not interested in selling our catalog to them because we did all that work. There was no, you know, no one could say, oh, these tens of millions of streams you have for this artist, these thousands of tickets you've sold, this was built on our label. So you owe us the masters. We did that on purpose to show that we didn't need to give the masters. 
you know? And that's probably one of the best deals all probably the best deal I'll ever make in my life, right? Because <laughs> he's growing and it has nothing like that was us, not them. You know, and we bet we decided to bet. I like to bet on the artist. Sometimes it can't be that way. You know, sometimes you have to give in because someone is in the worst financial place or look, sometimes you have six, five people in a band. I mean, it's been really, really different for me for the first time to work with. I only work with one band. That's Knuckle Puck. Everyone else is like a front man or woman. That's very different for me from what the first five years of my management career were like. So if you're one person and you own your masters, I mean, that's a very valuable, whether it's $300 a month or $3,000 a month. And as a manager, I think it goes back to like some people not being able to do the little things. I'm very glad Thomas and I started bad timing so long ago and that I learned how to make vinyl because I made all the vinyl for Cave Town 2 and physically distributed it on my own without needing to sign that catalog away, right? I may, Kevin Devine, we're doing a thing where patrons of his are going to be able to get exclusive vinyl and we don't have to give that vinyl away to a label and give up 50% of the profits. We're just doing it and Kevin's going to see 100% of the profits. These things are only possible when you own your catalog. You know, and if you have a career like Kevin, that catalog, he's pro- Kevin's probably going to make more money from a release this year than he did 12 years ago because it was on a label and he saw none of the profits, but the release came back to him and now his team can make him vinyl without giving up any of the revenue. You know, like catalog doesn't stop being valuable. <laughs> and so I think that it's, it's best to hold on to it as long as you can, really. And it's best to have people in place that can make that catalog more valuable, like being able to do vinyl, being whatever it is. I think it's very worthwhile for you. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, you talked about two legs of this. It's like, you know, the first, the building up and holding on to that back catalog. And, you know, obviously this was my model with Man Overboard as well, is that we waited as long as we could. We got tons of offers, but then finally we got an offer where Rise was kind of willing to give away things that were pretty ridiculous to us and gave us a great record deal. And we had tons of catalog because we had started their own label that they are able to profit off of still this day. But then the funny thing I see now is three of my artists have been going for about 20 years. We're in the process of getting a lot of these masters back from people and particularly just like taking control over a lot of the catalog and what we have versus like, let's say what Epitaph has, even when the Epitaph one is performing way, way, way better, we're making so much money off of what we own because... Yeah, you're making... I mean, I've done deals with Epitaph and it's not even, it's not me disparaging them. It's like, you know, they're actually good deals. Yeah, yeah, but like for most deals you're doing, you're only seeing 18 to 20% of the profit of the release. <laughs> Sometimes they'll do 50 50 deals, right? A services deal is so nice because it's the opposite. The, the, the service company is only getting 18 to 30%, right? It's mm-hmm. truly flipped on its head. It's, it's great. And yeah, if you own it, you're seeing, you know, 100% of it. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's really. And I think too, like, I mean, we can go down this rabbit hole or we don't. It's something I think we talked about five years ago, but I I think I'm seeing another real resurgence from artists because of COVID is just that like Spotify is not cheating you out of money. You know, there's a lot of money. Spotify pays out a lot of money. I have many artists that live off of their Spotify earnings, but they own their catalog. Maybe you're not making, let's just keep picking on Epitaph lovingly. (laughs) Maybe your catalog does quite well, but Epitaph is seeing 80% of the profit from it. And you're seeing 20% and then your manager of that 
let's just say of your $2,000 that you got, right? Because Epitaph got the other $8,000, you're giving 15% to your manager, 5% to your business manager. It's like now your $2,000 has become whatever, $1,600. It's like, yeah, you probably, I'd probably be pissed too, but I'd probably be pissed that I signed that deal. Not that at Spotify, you know, like, sure. Do I wish Spotify paid more? Of course. Why wouldn't we? But I, it really, there's this whole new wave of it where it's just like, it's, it's quite ignorant to me. You know? Yeah, and I think it's this so was the theme of this podcast was like we used to have to dunk on everybody who couldn't read a royalty statement properly or understand their record deal. And yeah, I 100% think like, you know, there's that thing with the guy who does the tricorders, the guy from that band Cracker, uh, David Lowry, uh-huh. that like he kind of says like it's his duty to be their thorn and their side, even though he knows some of what is doing because he's pushing for the right thing. And I as a extreme far leftist socialist, you know, yes, I I think that there's times that you need to be moving the Overton window over and saying something that's a, about 24% more than you want because the compromise then becomes something that's a little bit more to your side. And, you know, I do think there's some practices of Spotify that, like, particularly, really, yes, startups need employees, but, you know, when you walk into that office, you see the candy wall and you see the exploitation of the workers. You know, I dated a Spotify employee watching the hours for the compensation for them too was not particularly. Yeah, there's no doubt that Spotify could be doing a lot better, and I hope they do. Of course, most of the, almost every company in the world, right? <laughs> that that's the thing is we should be pushing them to do better. But sixty to eighty percent of the complaints about Spotify are so ill-informed and wrong, and not informed because you and I do have the power. I mean, really, our artists have the power to say, "Hey, you know, really, you could look at." the book since this is what it's like when you do things right and that's not as welcome because it's not very nice to show how well you're doing it doesn't really endear you to people but my god like it really is conversation changing when you see the record label royalty statement compared to the i own my master's royalty statement yeah for sure it's a tough i was talking to a friend of mine that that's a digital person it's tough to like criticize you you don't want to be in the position of criticizing an artist on twitter right like especially like an artists are very free to criticize managers record labels uh, booking agents at spotify but no one is free to criticize an artist but uh, the only reason i think that is a shame is because i think there is education there that's just missing like you should be upset at yourself and your lawyer and your manager if you wanted to make the majority of your ownership right but you know presumably you agreed hey we need to work with let's just say epitaph again to have more marketing muscles to have a forty thousand uh, dollar record budget and then for them to spend another forty thousand dollars on marketing right presumably you artists X that's complaining on Twitter was not going to be able to afford to do that yourself. So you took out a loan that you never have to pay back. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very nice kind of loan. <laughs> so I, uh, it's, it's just frustrating. I don't think it helps anyone for that artist to be complaining about that, you know? And I just wish that that just grates on me so much, unfortunately. <laughs> but it is a personal peeve. So one of the things that we did get to, though, with this artist services thing was that I also think that there's like an interesting that, thing that happens too is that as a record ages now, since streaming allows a record to age and keep profiting like never before. The funny thing is, is like all these record labels still pay you as if you're still paying for 
publicity around it. You're paying for the playlist pictures. When all of that funny thing is the playlist pictures kind of die the day the record comes out. Yeah, there's no pitching back catalog. No. And it's funny because like obviously at Warner, what I was working in a lot of the time was actually pushing back catalog and doing things to get people to stream an older release at times. But for the most part, that is rare. And I think it's so funny that like, you know, we're still also in these record deals that talk as if the press is ongoing, the things are ongoing, and that that percentage is worthwhile instead of diminishing. And like, I was having a talk the other day about that, like record labels really need to start getting structured in some of these deals that the percentage dies off with time, maybe. I, I completely agree. That's something I, that's interesting. I, I've had that talk with a lot of people lately. I think it's a very compelling offer too. I've even talked to people about if we're going to do a many hat services deal where like we're investing like through the miscellaneous title of the of the company where we're going to be investing let's say ten thousand dollars to release your record market it vinyl whatever and we're going to take 25 percent after three years that becomes five percent for another three years it goes to the many hats distribution bucket mm. and obviously like I have very little overhead. My my structure is much different. That also means I'm offering you less inherently profit than working with an orchard or Warner, right? Mm-hmm. But it's something I believe in. So I might as well like put the money in terms where my mouth is or whatever. But I, I think that's very attractive too. And I think that's good business. BMG just switched recently. All deals they're doing are license deals moving forward. I think that took a lot of guts for them, honestly. How long ago did they do that? At least a year ago. I did a deal with them a year ago, and it was it was one of the first. And that's just company policy now. All deals are fifteen year deals. That's still a long time, right? I'm I'm a, I'm a large fan of a five to seven year license, but that's a big step, right? If Universal tomorrow said all deals we're doing are fifteen year deals moving forward, that'd be crazy. That would be big news. Especially imagine if Billie Eilish's record just became hers twelve years from now. That would be a big. <laughs> There's that funny thing too with that lawsuit that, what is it, 35 years, they say, was indentured servitude? Yeah, 35 years, yeah, yeah. And so some indie labels, I'm particularly in talks with one that I won't name right now since uh, I want the case to go our way, as being like, well, maybe 20 years is right for us. And that's a big deal because this record still gets millions of streams a year and it's about to come up on 20 years. So like, I'd like that to happen and say, here's the master so that we can then get our higher percentage. And I'm hoping that that is the if we think of that everybody's talking about that we're in the social justice era this is one of the great social justices for music that when a label hasn't done anything for a record in two decades should they really still be rewarded this much for it yeah i agree certainly art should be the artist i think but yeah i I think the tiered model is is something that's going to catch on I, i think like even bmg doing that is kind of a red flag i think to the majors to some degree that being said like you know there's all these sides of major labels right there's warner there's electra there's atlantic there's rca there's sony there's columbia whatever but it's funny like some arms of these major label conglomerations are like to do licenses and some don't it's still i think it's still very much being sorted through but now that the wall has been burst i I think it's only a matter of time until we move more of that model especially when you have any leverage at all it gets harder because at the end of the day there is there are services companies now and warner might say hey i'm going to do a better job for you and that's why we should take 80 percent and i think a manager has the right to say look maybe you'll do a better job but if awol will do 70 percent as good of a job and only take 30 percent of the money i'm still doing better than giving you 80 percent of the money right <laughs> it's at some point it's just a math it's just a math equation yeah well maybe they'll all be able to do this when they realize they don't need those offices in times square anymore <laughs> oh i hope so <laughs>
I'd love to stop going to 50th Street. I got to stop doing that that right about the time I signed the lease of the Times Square space. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, do you want to do recommendations? Sure. I have been watching a few... Oh, I've been watching a lot of shows through quarantine. I used to watch a lot more TV in my life, especially in college, and then that changed a lot drastically. And now uh, a nice thing of quarantine has been TV watching. So when you stopped watching TV, what did you replace the time with? Work and podcasts. Having a partner, I don't know. I just whatever time I was giving to TV, a lot of it went away. Not that I stopped watching completely, but uh, there's a lot of stuff that I wanted to be watching that I just couldn't. But a couple shows I have enjoyed during quarantine has been an HBO show called "I May Destroy You," which is incredible. Um, I'm going to take this recommendation as the hint that I have to watch past the first five minutes where I hit stop. Oh, yeah, it's great. I mean, it's a tough show, but it's really good. The female lead is the writer, producer, and star of the show. and She's really compelling. I actually watch it with subtitles on because some of their some of the British action I find actually too hard for me to pick up on sometimes. So I watch it with subtitles on. I watch all TV with subtitles on. So That's a pro move. I, I've considered doing that. Sometimes I do it. Sometimes I don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, Actually, all of these are HBO recommendations. There's a show called Betty uh, that I've only seen a little bit so far that's on HBO, which is a skateboarding show about girls skateboarding. Then uh, the actual actors in the show are not actors. They're like the real human being skateboarders. And it's, it's a cool show. And then I never watched The Sopranos, but that has been my uh, binge of quarantine. And I am loving it. Well, you are such a bad Jersey boy. It was something I wanted to do. And just it was like, oh, God, I don't know if I can devote to this. But Sopranos and then Gilmore Girls are the two are my two binge shows. Mm. You know, what's the really good quote from Betty. The internet is the new word of mouth. <laughs> it was like one of the one of those things. I was like, "Wow, that's the most, the most dumb and profound thing I've heard all at once." Yeah, it's a fun show. So yeah, those are my TV choices. A couple. The question is though: Is The Sopranos changing you anyway? I just like it. I get why it would have been groundbreaking then. You know, watching it now, you can clearly see its influence for sure. I just really enjoy it. It's like a fun. To me, it's not that heavy of a show. If that show was made now, it'd be way more heavy. I think. Yeah, yeah, that's totally true. It's pretty enjoyable. It's funny. It's good. Like I, I really love it like i would watch it i would re-watch it at some point just because it doesn't feel like we rewatched breaking bad last year one of my few favorite shows of all time like, i couldn't watch that again for ages i tried it didn't work like it's emotional dark. it's bleak i know i've been told sopranos gets like yeah darker as you go on but i'm probably i think i'm on season three and like i don't know, just really enjoy it i like watching two or three of them a night depending on what grace wants to do and if she doesn't want to watch tv together i'm doing that one alone it's been really enjoyable and yeah it is so jersey that i love i do love <laughs> being like with it. It's really good. The thing about The Sopranos to me, unlike Breaking Bad, is Breaking Bad relied so much on you don't know what's happening next. And The Sopranos, you can go deep. I'm on the fourth or fifth rewatch. And like, you know, it's like one of those things like every just couple years, if I'm having like a bout of exhaustion, I'll just hit play while I lay in bed for two hours in the morning trying to get the strength to go on with the day. Yeah, it's an easy show to go down for sure. That's what I was worried about, too. I think I thought it was going to be a little like too heady and it isn't that way at all, which is not an insult. It's just like a really enjoyable show. Yeah, music. Music. I like this man in Japanese house a lot. One of my favorites. Uh, Yeah, Japanese house. Really just good, like in the house. Uh, like to play in your actual house band, you know? <laughs> I play that a lot, like on our Google Home stuff. Bad Time, we released a new Mansions album a little while ago called Big Bad. My 
second favorite album of the year, oddly enough, is probably All Time Lows. Wow. Which is an incredible thing for me to say out loud, but I love it. I think it's the best pop punk music and I've heard in a long time. It's just really good pop punk music. I have not listened to it. Now I'm intrigued since I've never liked them before. Yeah, I liked one album of theirs literally 10 years ago and nothing since then. And I, I love this. There's a song called Trouble Is on that album that I would recommend. It is an awesome song. Well, I know Johnny also said it's their best work, so now, I, now I'm intrigued. Without a doubt. And then I love the Soccer Mommy album. I was not a fan of her last album. Um, oh, really? I don't like the new one and I love the last one. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's, that's probably my yeah one of my five favorites favorites this year for sure those are mine you have a movie oh yeah I, we watched palm springs on sunday the new hulu movie with um andy samberg and it was delightful and a quarantine movie for sure i would recommend it i, I think that and king of staten island is our plan this weekend yeah i, I haven't watched that yet either i want to do uh, staten island yeah so my tv it's funny because i think i recommended it when it started on the show which was mr robot i've been re-watching yeah because it's my favorite TV show of all time. And I actually have a lot of trouble watching TV these days. YouTube has ruined my attention span because <laughs> I watch so much of it. And so I can't really get gripped. There's also just the thing that I think like Mr. Robot, because of my job producing a political podcast, I have a real hard time not wanting more insight into life each day and like what the hell we're living through is. And there's something that's future predictive of like what that show did that I'm like, oh, this wasn't quite what they said, but there is a, a hellscape that they describe in this show that feels way too familiar. And I just want the insight each day. Yeah. My favorite TV show of all time. I never watched Vice Principals. So I never watched it either. Uh, did you like Righteous Gemstones? Yeah, I did. I would highly recommend going back and doing it. It's only two seasons, and I didn't love the first episode. Oh, really? For some reason, I thought it was like a crazy long show. No, not, I think he intentionally kept this one light, unlike he's bound and down, and I will say, like, I didn't love the first episode, then we powered on. Now I'm like, we're about two episodes from the end, and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm such an idiot for missing this. Well, yeah, if it's short, I might give it a go, for sure. Yeah, and then speaking of short, I watched Mrs. America, which is the Phyllis Schlafly story, and that is some of the best acting I've ever scene. It really is just stunning. I don't have any movies because I will go on record of saying that I thought the last two years were some of the best years for movies, and there's been pretty much nothing that's really moved me in all of 2020. Yeah, I think that's fair. We're also, we're not a big, we both really enjoy movies, but we definitely watch them the least of any other kind of like content or whatever, you know? We've watched a decent amount of quarantine through quarantine. I've kept like a media journal of everything I've watched, read, or listened to through quarantine, actually, that I'm going to publish whenever this ends in five years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll just become your diary for a few years. Yeah, my favorite movie this year, we watched Knives Out, which came out last year. And we, I liked that movie. Yeah, we liked that. I, I hadn't seen Parasite last year either. I watched that finally this year. I love that. Like, there, there's a bunch of stuff like that that I've liked. But I also tried to watch a lot of movies this year during quarantine that I abandoned, that I just, like, thought I would, like, love better older movies that I just gave up on. <laughs> so I don't know. TV is definitely my preferred medium but sometimes you want something to start and end like a movie you know i got really into going to like nighthawk mm -hmm. oh yeah i miss what's the other one syndicated or alamo alamo yeah 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 i mean i go to all of them it's that thing of like now that we can't do that that was 
a probably every other week thing for me is sitting drinking and having a snack in the theater because like there is that thing it's like i want to have a drink and i want to have it so that my phone is verboten i can't get distracted and now that i don't have that it is just very difficult for me to watch a movie yeah it's hard and like either like we have to walk the dog or something it's, it's it feels way better to be living life right now i think with tv <laughs> yes and my music stuff is probably not shocking to anybody who knows me, which is the 1975, my favorite band, put out a record that I think is their second best record. I'm a big fan as well. I was kind of shocked to see that when I saw one of your lists. I did not see that coming. I actually really like almost detested them before the record last year. And I totally fell in love with that. I don't, I appreciate what they do with how much wackiness is on their records. Like there's a lot of stuff that I just don't like, you know, mm -hmm. on both of the last two records. But I mean, there's some songs on Brief Inquiry that are like some of my favorite songs in the last years, you know, like I think there's like three or four songs on that record. I think a lot of that record is awesome, but there's three or four songs on that record that are just like fucked up good. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the same of, of notes on a form too. Like there's just some, there's three or four songs on that that I could just like listen to nonstop. And I appreciate what they're doing with like the 59 song albums. <laughs> it's not for me, that part of it, but I do really appreciate that. I, I appreciate the audacity of the band. I appreciate the art. I mean, a lot of it reminded me of like what we were trying to do with brand new at points, you know, like I, I appreciate the fullness of the full thought outness of what they're doing. It, it takes so much work. Mm -hmm. I know that from work artists like that there's so much work to actually follow a plan for years it's one of the hardest things you can do as an artist because so much is always changing and I, I really appreciate them and I think he gets actually I think he gets way too much shit from the internet I, I mean I would argue he makes people feel very bad about themselves because he's just more of a human I'm obviously a huge fan and I will say this is their longest record to me it's actually their most consistently good like I enjoy more songs on this than any other record but he's also the smartest best interview in music no one can touch him on being able to touch on a wide form of subjects in a really intelligent way. Yeah, no, I think he's really smart, well-read. Again, I think what they do is, is quite inspiring to me, even if I'm not, like, the biggest fan. Their art actually inspires me in the way they do it. It's very inspiring to me as someone that, like, I would like to... I do not consider myself, like, an artist, but I consider myself a creative business person, which is, like, the lamest term in the world. And I, I think what they do is very... Um, they're, they're ahead of the curve on almost everything, and I really like that. Yeah, and... It, you know, I think there's a funny thing if like we talk about them devoting themselves like the you know, it's like they spent a long time. Like, you know, if you think of that really these last two records are songs were being worked on at the same time. It's like, but then my other favorite record right now is a record that was made in like 40 days in quarantine, which is the Charlie XCX record. And what I love about that is it shows that it's not about the time that because like I would argue that Charlie XCX record is just as revolutionary in that it has all new sounds, it is totally just wild in its boldness while still keeping it pop. And I love that you could have a record that takes 18 months of slaving away every day and a record that can take 40 days and you could still have just insanely high peaks of artistic creativity from it. Yeah, I like all the play. I mean, another nice thing I think about streaming and Spotify is that like, I think there's a lot of creativity in the format of releasing music right now. And yes, most people just releasing singles and not albums but i think like there is creativity like we did basically like a set of digital seven inch series for cave town in 2018 and 2019 and 1975 have released a fucking 20 song album or something right like there is a lot of creativity there's mixtape stuff like eight singles 21 songs yeah like there is a lot you can do if you really have buy-in from your audience and again if you really buy into yourself and, and commit and i really appreciate that yeah, and then my last ones is like, I just love that 100 Gex movement and, you know, the song I 
keep pushing everybody is Guppy and Fraxium did this song called Das Moser that I think is the most ahead of the curve song of recent years. It's actually uh, Tony Hawk's son is Guppy. Oh. And uh, th- I would say that their song, so it's Guppy, Fraxium, Das Moser, that video, it's the future of music videos. I think it's the best music video to be made and it's what videos will be in the future. It is the most Zoomer shit I've ever seen and it's amazing. I will check that out. All right. Do you have anything else? No, I'll see you in five years. Thanks so much for listening. Obviously, we touched on a lot of subjects here. So if you go to the show notes that are linked to this podcast, you can see so many different links of what we talked about, as well as all our businesses and things like that, since I know this one was pretty dense. I'd say smash that subscribe button, but who knows if it's going to be five years before we do another episode. We'll see. 